Uh, and in a way, COVID is a blessing. We have to look at it that way because it's actually creating forced new economic models as we speak. And, and that will allow people to live further and further away from big cities in safety with self-reliance um, and be connected through technology to do whatever tasks they need to do. Uh, and in, in any case, we know that what's coming is that half of employment's not gonna be there anyway. So we have to start to reinvent what does employment actually mean? You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that was James Ehrlich, the founder of Regen Villages, who is optimistic that COVID-19 quarantines may catalyze the adoption of self-sustainable regenerative villages. So what does that mean exactly? How will villages sustain themselves? And is it possible people will start moving away from cities? Let's find out on this episode of the Realtors Podcast. Enjoy. All right, Dan, get it done. All right. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, here today to talk about the changing future of safe homes and self-reliant neighborhoods. This is Mr. James Ehrlich. James, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, James, you and I both are in the state of California, the great state of California, and we've just been told to stay inside. Now, I don't know if you noticed this weekend, James, but a lot of people resorted to going outside instead of inside. What positives do you think, as someone that works in Regen homes, do you think will come from this? Well, there's uh, definitely a bright, optimistic future to look forward to in terms of regenerative resiliency. And that's been the basis of my research for over 15 plus years of organic, biodynamic, family farming, permaculture, intentional communities, eco-villages, and the like. And the truth is that we're entering a new era. And that new era is about kind of going back in a way to where our species used to be up until about the year 1950. And it's only been that recent that this shift happened where the peri-urban and the rural areas, um, 75% of human population lived in self-sustaining small communities. And uh, from 1950, of course, until now, we have this emergence of megacities and and um, urban areas and, and sprawl. And that has taken us away from our relationship with nature. So that's one of the key things that I really feel excited about, that we now uh, have this uh, global awareness that something like Regen Villages is not only uh, plausible, but it's urgent and necessary right now. It's interesting. Uh, you know, what are people missing, I guess, if, if they don't, if they're not living in a Regen Village now? I mean, uh, take us back to pre-1950 times and maybe explain to our audience what you mean by a regenerative village. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward uh, in terms of how we view living within nature and not separate from it. Mm. And part of that means that, that you're having access and agency to natural resources, such as healthy organic food uh, in abundant surplus, 
uh, at your doorstep. Um, so farm to table communities, basically. Uh, clean water, water purification, water stewardship in terms of uh, cisterning water, storing water, being frugal with how water is used, but also being able to recycle and, and use both gray and, and black water for lots of purposes. Um, we can talk more about that in a little bit. Then, of course, the clean, renewable um, energy, which is generated at the neighborhood scale and shared across the neighborhood and stored and used uh, both between homes, but also empowering all kinds of wonderful things like electric vehicles and farm equipment and et cetera. And then um, the idea of turning waste into resources. Hmm. So natural systems that digest waste and turn it into, uh, again, you know, usable potable water, uh, energy, so biogas, and, um, and then of course, other kinds of, of fertilizers and, and inert plastics. So the main thing is that waste, human waste, especially um, at a district scale, in, at the city level or, or, or sprawl level, uh, is um, our pathogens that need to be mitigated. And it requires a lot of energy, and even still, um, you get a lot of of, um, of of issues in those kinds of systems. But in a small neighborhood uh, infrastructure capacity, like 300, 500 homes, being able to digest that human waste, you can actually convert that into what are called asset classes. So you can turn that into, uh, change the rules, of course, you can change it into potable water. Uh, but even if you don't change those laws, you can have all kinds of water for irrigation and and for um, use of of the mass into energy and and other kinds of things, as I mentioned before. So it's a lot of exciting things you can do at the neighborhood scale. Well, I like your example of the pathogen. I mean, I've had this theory about uh, I'm big into like symbiotic relationships. And so there's mutualistic where both sides benefit. There's commensalistic where one benefits another one really isn't affected. Then parasitic, which some could call the coronavirus going on right now. Um, a mutualistic for me, though, you know, if if is it possible? I mean, the thesis is, is it possible to live in a world where everyone benefits, where the excess of surplus is contributed towards society and that's how we advance? It's an interesting theory. I don't think we're there yet, but I'd love to see your research, your thesis on regen villages and kind of, uh, I, know, I know you got a slideshow uh, prepared for us here today, so we'd love to check that out as well. Always, always have a slideshow ready. Always have to have the slideshow ready. Yeah, so um, to just you know a little bit of background about myself, and I've um, I'm been at Stanford University since 2012. Um, I'm currently an entrepreneur in residence in the Stanford School of Medicine um, in the Health and Human Performance uh, group in a very interesting nascent uh, project. Hopefully, someday soon in the future, an institute called Stanford Flourishing, which is all about how we can improve healthy outcomes for happy uh, longevity. And that has to do with where we live and how we live. Uh, and so my particular ring is, is the ecological ring, which is uh, what we're calling resiliency in the built environment. So that's where I founded, you know, from my research, this, this um, uh, other organization called Regen Villages Holding, which is a technology-driven uh, bioregenerative neighborhood uh, software and community development company. And in addition to that, I'm a faculty member at Singularity University. As you know, uh, I'm a senior fellow at NASA Ames Research Center 
And then under the Obama administration, I was appointed to a White House State Department Joint Task Force on regenerative infrastructure. Mm. So uh, I'll take you a little bit of a background. My um, my childhood and my my upbringing was in New York. So I was born and raised in New York and New York City. So I really understand uh, the vibrance and the passion of urban environments and you know being able to order like a specific kind of Indian food from a specific region of India delivered at 3.30 in the morning. Um, <laughs> you, you have that um, in, in cities like New York. At the same time, I also witnessed firsthand how brittle uh, the infrastructure is and that when something goes wrong, it goes wrong uh, badly and, and for many people. And I think that's one of the things that really sort of inspired me to, to think about um, the idea of regen villages uh, from, my, from my background. But I moved to Silicon Valley after my undergrad degree from New York University, and I started a software company up in Marin County, north of the Golden Gate Bridge, a very beautiful place. We were developing, at the time, tools and technology, uh, not only for video game design, but also for special effects promotion pictures. So working a lot with, with folks from, from George Lucas and Industrial Light and Magic. But I was surrounded by all of these incredible, small plot, organic, biodynamic family farms. And I didn't know what the word organic meant back then. I thought everything was organic, including petroleum. Um, and I didn't know what the word biodynamic was. And so I started to really dig into this and do research on it. And I was really passionate about this concept of, of, of diversity in in farming practices, in especially in the research on the work of Rudolf Steiner, which is this um, century-old research on biodiversity and celestial uh, farming patterns. And then also the work from the 1970s coming out of Australia in permaculture and food forests and berms and guilds and these full-stack ecosystems that contribute to each other and are in um, symbiotic relationship to each other. And I was having these incredible meals. I was enjoying farm-to-table experiences uh, every week, laughter with friends. And I was trying to figure out, why am I feeling so good? Is it the food? Is it the wine? <laughs> Is it the conversation? And, and I started to realize that it had a lot to do with this agency and connectivity with where the food was coming from, and of course, prepared with love. And so as I was filming these interviews with these family farmers, I was tracking where the food was going, eventually leading to these stories about these fantastic chefs all around the world who were doing anything from school lunches all the way up to fine one to three Michelin star uh, kinds of uh, restaurants and spas and resorts. And that led to producing a national public television cooking series called Organic Living. And the show ran for almost a decade on national public television. At the apex, the show I produced and directed reached over 35 million homes a week. Uh, we had a best-selling companion cookbook on Hachette that I co-authored. Uh, but the stories were more than just about food and recipes. It was also about the fact that uh, where the food was coming from and these intentional communities surrounding these, these beautiful, lush farms. And that's when I got a bug again back to, to be involved in technology and started to, 
to do my research on the potential for digital connectivity between nature and, and software. And that's when I was inspired when I came to Stanford in, in 2012 by the work of Dr. Suzanne Simard, who had uh, termed this idea of the wood wide web, not the world wide web, but the wood wide web, based on uh, her discovery of this mycelian, mycorrhizal, fungal fabric, this network that, that lives under the forest floor. And she discovered that it's actually a collaborative economy, that even a, a disparate uh, species of trees and bushes and plants in the forest were not only communicating with each other through this fungal network, but they were conveying nutrients, minerals, carbon, uh, sugar, water. And so her research, she discovered that old growth Douglas fir trees, these mother trees in the forest, were conveying these nutrients to these maple seedlings hundreds of meters away. And one would think it would be quite Darwinian that the maple seedling would die off because it's in the shadow of these giant trees. But it turns out that there's this long-term bank account uh, ledger underneath the forest floor that someday this maple tree will have some very interesting things to then bring to the community. And so the community at large supports the seedlings to bring it forward. And at the same time, if you notice like this insect, um, insects, when they bite the leaf of a connected cultivar, um, the saliva is detected uh, through the fungal network and it sends a signal out to all the plants in that vicinity. And then I call it the forest Wi-Fi, right? Because then a pheromone is released and birds and wasps that find that particular insect tasty flock in and, and take care of the problem. So at Stanford, you know, we study something called biomimetics or biomimicry. Mm -hmm. So how can we look at nature and then create design thinking around that? And so the neuron, the nerve cell, um, this uh, sort of satellite images of London at night, uh, the simulation digitally of the internet, and most strikingly, recently, this discovery that galaxies, cosmological scale, are connected through dark matter. No. And the patterns are pretty much exactly like this, these mesh networks of distributed intelligence. Hmm. So it's intelligence really at the point of sensing. And that's the key of, of a mycelian network. In other words, there's no central brain. It is, it is distributed mesh kind of thinking. So we endeavor to create a village operating system, a software stack that can be the first of its kind to look at a sort of a digital mycelian network, the connectivity between all of these different pieces of food, water, energy, waste to resource management, smart house, energy positive homes, smart mobility, uh, curriculum, healthcare, all those different pieces that comprise living in a neighborhood, but have that um, as a sort of nutritional flow uh, managed by software. And this would and have to be decentralized, right? That's, that's correct. We, we look at decentralized living, not necessarily from a political perspective, from a libertarian perspective necessarily, but more of a safety perspective. And now more than ever, the word decentralized is going to become 
front, you know, you know, front and foremost in people's minds because of what it means is that you and your neighbors and your communities, neighborhood by neighborhood, have the capacity to be okay when district scale services go on the fritz. It's not if that happens, but really when that happens. So at the heart of it is this beautiful, lush farming community of very different kind of farming, by the way, not rows of the same thing, but patchworks of lots of different kinds of very delicious cultivars and plants um, and and high protein kind of nutrition. And that 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 uh, diversity in farming brings about a, a better way forward because we don't till the soil. We use the mycelium network to convey those nutrients and do those things. But also, we would argue that this nutrition is more bioavailable. In other words, once it's picked and, and harvested, it doesn't get on a truck and go to a distribution center and go to a warehouse and then go to a supermarket and sit under fluorescent light for X number of days. That as soon as it's pretty much harvested, it's um, showing up at your doorstep or in the community cafe. And then you're then consuming a much higher frequency uh, nutritional value. And um, we also supplement the soil-based farming in our design thinking with controlled environment farming. So these are greenhouses that have um, vertical lattices, so vertical farms. Uh, we use aquaponics and aeroponics. And very simply, this are large embedded fish tanks, freshwater shrimp, crawfish, six or seven different species of freshwater fish, of course, delicious protein, um, but their waste, their poop is actually ammonia. And, um, and when we extract that with a very low energy uh, water pump through a biological interaction, that is then fed to these uh, vertical farms. And the roots in this situation just dangle in this nutrient-rich water. And then the water trickles back down to the fish tanks, purified, and we've saved almost 80% water in farming like this, with almost one-third increased biodiverse yield. So it's an excellent supplement to um, you know to soil-based farming, especially in in seasonal uh, kinds of areas in, in northern Europe and northern U.S., Canada, etc. Um, and then that soil-based farming, vertical farming, married to uh, next to home or apartment cultivation, you can start to see a picture here unfold of overproduction of really beautiful, healthy, artisanal ingredients that's life-affirming, that makes people feel safe, that makes people feel comfortable. And that overproduction is a form then uh, that can take, you know, into barter, into bringing other kinds of um, protein sources and nutrients into the community. So it's a really robust kind of system. Um, I want to walk you through a little bit on the topic of how do we feed the chickens? How do we feed the fish? Uh, Because those uh, fish meal and chicken meal can be very expensive and usually not the best things for those creatures to eat. So we've been looking at how do we digest food and animal waste, which is using aquatic red worms, uh, perfect nutrition for the fish, high omega-3 and fat, um, black soldier fly larvae, which is a non-invasive fly species, 
Uh, both of these creatures eat their own weight every day in food and animal waste. Um, but what I think is even the most exciting part, besides these creatures being then circularly fed to the chickens and the fish, is that their waste is um, nutrient-rich, microbe-filled topsoil. And that topsoil is gold. It's one of the things most needed right now on, on our planet is the ability to create restorative soil. Uh, and that that soil is then capable with all of its microbes and nutrients of this uh, reinforced web of life. So we can do this on a brownfield location or a grayfield location and actually bring those places back to abundant surplus. And that's the basis of our uh, metabolic integration. Mm. So previous neighborhoods were developed in ways where you have water, energy, waste. But those systems never knew about each other or had a chance to learn from each other. So we have that, plus in addition to that, we add the food component. And that's the basis of our village OS, our village operating system software. The regenerative infrastructure connected to any number of energy positive home technologies. But it doesn't matter if it's Bosch, Siemens, LG, uh, Panasonic, uh, our, those pieces can talk to our software. Um, but also that we have external connectivity to autonomous mobility, a curriculum, healthcare, and, and the like. And so where we're going right now in our software stack is quite uh, compelling because it's the first of its kind, again, of software that will be able to uh, virtually model a regenerative neighborhood. You just give us the land information, what's called GIS data, and the software will be able to uh, create essentially a simulation, a digital twin of that data. And, and allow planners, government, uh, landowners, banks, et cetera, to toggle how much housing for how much open space that doesn't compromise the productive value of that land. And so we can start to really see changing the rules with this software to start to fast track permit these kinds of communities at scale around the world rapidly, mm. um, especially on previously zoned agricultural ranch land. And then that same software is then used to actually run the physical neighborhoods. So the first part is designing, defining uh, in the simulation mode. And then once it's defined, the village operating system is a software in a box that runs the neighborhood itself hmm. and learns and improves. Uh, that's why we've been called the Tesla of eco-villages, uh, because we are a you know technology driven you know bioregenerative of concept. Got it. And then the third phase of the software is really a new rule book, a new rule book uh, as a service for government that they can create these yes decentralized off grid neighborhoods, but where they don't lose tax base, and so it's non threatening. In mm -hmm. other words, mm -hmm. to them and to the large funds that are behind it. And then you can start to get a snapshot of this idea of interconnected regenerative neighborhoods around the world that are communicating with each other and improving based on where they are in climate zones. So it's border-free software, it's border-free tech, and that's a really exciting way forward 
especially in dynamically changing uh, climate times and economic times, especially that we're in right now, that neighborhoods can really have our back for the first time in terms of our health and supporting our um, safety. Um, and I'm off to say it's not Star Trek. It's not a holodeck. <laughs> it's logical infrastructure that supports this really beautiful way of life of families coming together and supporting each other in, you know, in these really beautiful ways. And that's the basis of the research as well, that people can live to 100, 110 years old, never seeing doctor, not taking pharmaceuticals. Um, it's based also in part on the Blue Zone research, which is very similar uh, to my research, and where we can get back to a place where we're celebrating seasonality in this kind of very beautiful uh, master plan living and thinking. And, and that's really this whole idea as well about the future of mobility, the future of work. Uh, a lot of things are changing rapidly, even as we're, even as we're talking right now, mm. things are changing because of the world we're living in. So we know that autonomous vehicles and transit are coming, high-speed things like Virgin Hyperloop, um, drone taxis, drone deliveries. So we're designing neighborhoods now for the flourishing, abundant surplus for neighbors uh, and residents going forward. And that's really the, the basis of, of our design thinking, especially, uh, to be honest, around social affordable housing. Mm. So um, I'm cognizant that I've been dominating the conversation here. If there's something you want to jump in on. Hey, this is this is your interview. This is your interview. Well, it, this is why I asked you that question, though. The first question was, "What positives do you see coming out of this?" Because you know we're at an interesting point where we could really hit the reset button on how we live, and you know cultures throughout time, especially since you mentioned the 1950s, they've always expanded to their outer city limits. Uh, and we just keep uh, consuming resources and we're not in a sustainable, circular, regenerative economy uh, that could benefit everybody. And, you know, you're speaking of mycelia and now all my the audience is going, wait, plants can talk to each other. They can communicate. Yes, people. Uh, mycelium, uh, a great. It's, it's a fungus, right? So it, it, it um, improves the absorption of water by 100 times for plants. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. We're, we're descendants of fungi. I had That's the correct. I had the late and great Paul Stamets on the show earlier, and he said, you know, he wants to redefine Darwinian theory. And I think we've touched on this a little bit. He said it's not the survival of the fittest; it is the extension of generosity of surplus to other members in the ecological community to build biodiversity. Uh, and hence, it's not the individual that survives; it's the community that cooperates that survives. That's correct. And 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 Paul Stamets, by the way, is is uh, you know is, is one of our um, absolute heroes, uh, along with Dr. Suzanne Simard, you know, in terms of, of learning about um, the uh, distributed intelligence of fungal networks and, and their nature of, of, of creating these symbiotic relationships. So it's, it's really powerful stuff. I think Paul Stamets is incredible. Absolutely. And James, uh, I'm going to ask you to close the, the presentation unless you have sure. some more slides for us. Uh, but for our audience listening to this on audio, if you want to watch this, go to our YouTube page at Realtors Magazine. The video will be up there. You can watch uh, James's slide deck, a lot, uh, a lot of nice futuristic cities in there, cool vertical farms, 
Uh, it's very impressive stuff. Now, James, I think the question on everyone's mind right now is how far out are we from uh, a neighborhood like this? What is the business model and do you see people living, leaving big cities? It's a great, it's an amazing question uh, to start with. It's not a matter of technology anymore. It's really just a matter of money and political will. Mm. And when you have the money, usually the political will gets a little bit easier, not always, but a little bit easier. Now with what we're going through, especially with COVID, we're pretty confident that a systemic kind of government interest is, is now going to be there to change the rules, to allow and enable these kinds of neighborhoods to get built rapidly at scale concurrently around the world. And that's where we really feel like we're at the forefront of this with our village operating system software. And we've built a global brand. We are, I would say, the rolling stones of the modern eco-village movement uh, in that way. 90 million plus web impressions, uh, 20,000 plus families have already registered to, to live in regen villages around the world. We're in the process right now of raising the Series A round, which is uh, 17 million euro. And that would allow us to actually build the first 350 home uh, community. And there's a lot of really interesting things happening right now uh, in terms of transiting fossil fuel investments for those groups that got out uh, before the crash in terms of fossil fuel. Uh, there's probably 12 trillion US dollars uh, floating around right now from those divestments. Whole countries, Norway, uh, Ireland, University of California, Cal, God bless them, have divested from fossil fuels. And so there's, there's money there to create the new way of living. Um, are we going to take Mumbai from 35 million people down to 5 million people? I don't think so. But what we can do is prevent Mumbai from going from 35 million to 50 million people, mm. which is untenable, right? So the idea is, uh, as a species, we only occupy maybe 2 to 3% of the available landmass. Take into consideration a certain amount of what you have to do for conservation of land and other kinds of areas which are not too easy to build on, whether they're mountains or other kinds of, of scenarios. But for the most part, there's plenty enough room for a good amount of humanity to be living in these lily pads of self-reliant, strong and healthy, small communities. Uh, and and be interacting with each other and bartering with each other just as it was pre-1950. And, and by doing this as well, we have the next sort of leap in terms of the future of uh, work, in terms of self-worth, in terms of building new economies, people living in these communities. Put it this way, if you have your basic Maslow hierarchical needs met, right? Uh, so food, water, energy, hygiene, I throw in there now uh, a good, you know, latte and, and good bandwidth. You know, I think that's the, the bottom sure. of, the, of Maslow pyramid at this point. Um, but all kidding aside, that you have all of those things, it gives people the freedom to have big thoughts and, and come together mm. and live in that, like that generous spirit, as Paul Stamets says. So, um, yeah, we're, we are fundraising. We are definitely looking for investors. Uh, we have some incredible technical partners, and we're in due diligence right now with some very large investment groups and companies. So it's a really good time to invest in the future 
uh, by by coming to to regenvillages.com. It, it is interesting times. Uh, I interviewed someone who was big in national and local parks. Parks decrease anxiety. I didn't know anything about that. Um, but time after time, reports of people just being immersed in nature, as we saw this weekend, people are out and about trying to de- decrease the anxiety of living indoors. It's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting it's, model. There's a funny meme circulating that that when you tell people that they can't uh, go outside, everybody wants to go outside. Otherwise, everybody would be more than happy to be inside on a beautiful day, uh, whole families on their separate devices. So. That's exactly right. So here, here's another question, though. So, you know, if we're trying to uh, give the surplus back to communities in the outskirts of the cities, so you're saying you have to develop a new, entirely new city, or can you integrate the operating system into um, a, a destitutional area, I guess? It's, it's, in, <clears throat> it's a really great question. It's probably one of the top questions that we get is, you okay. know, can we do retrofits? Um, where we're starting is in the outside city areas. So near suburban, uh, greenfield, open areas, because as I mentioned before, there's a particular pain point right now with landowners and local governments in those near suburban areas who want to build, but they can't because the rules are blocking them because it's either farmland or ranch land or or greenbelt open space. Mm. And what we're saying is, hey, you can actually build some amount of housing, some amount of density on that land without not only compromising the productive value, but overproducing uh, in all those asset classes you know, that I mentioned. So we start there, new build, right? And then, our, of course, my thesis has and continues to be peri-urban and rural areas, because guess what? The land is either super cheap or free for the most part, because those areas are in, having such terrible pain points right now, because so many people from the 1950s and on have left those areas. Mm-hmm. So they're looking for some kind of resurgence and rejuvenation. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and imagine that if you can have a place to live in that is socially affordable uh, and you can have a mortgage paid in 20 years and you have all of your natural resources at your doorstep to support your family's health and happiness and long-term longevity, um, we're going to start to see a lot of people wanting this kind of lifestyle, I would say already, because our email is already off the hook mm. since, you know, since COVID really kicked in. Um, so, and then the answer to the question ultimately is, can we do this in cities? The answer is yes, we can take some pieces of this and bring it back to urban areas. Um, but cities are brittle. And, um, and by the time you end up doing the retrofit, you probably could have built a brand new community uh, of several hundred homes that allows a few thousand people to live in them and, and have all of those variabilities really con- controlled for with our software stack. What comes to mind, James, are like community solar farms that are already incorporating something like this. Now, what would be your business model for this in terms of uh, revenue? Like, would this be a subscription service? I know you said your mortgage is probably be very similar, but for like energy, those commodities, agriculture, uh, what would you, what would your model be? Our, our model really is, is quite simple. We, we are focused um, as a software company to, to deliver um, thriving as a service and, and, uh, and that thriving as a service allows 
the developers, the constructors, municipalities who would license our software and technology for the planning and then the operation and management of those communities. But we stay in, we stay involved with every single of those villages because we are concerned and care about their thriving. So we wanna make sure that the data that's being aggregated is being used for <clears throat> improvement of those systems or mitigation against risk for those systems. And that's really where our business model is focused on. So it's if you look at 20 years out, 30 years out, 50 years out, and then we are baked in as part of a, a fee, a monthly association fee that's very low and very reasonable, that's the right kind of uh, um, market segment. So there's a licensing component for us, you know, with developers and constructors and, and government. That's one part of our, of our revenue generation, but the rest really is this very long-term uh, data infrastructure repository for uh, thriving algorithms, essentially. Well, I just love that lily pad analogy that you had thrown out there and communicating by mycelium decentralized network. Have you ever looked into or thought about incorporating some type of blockchain aspect to this, some cryptocurrency aspect to this? What are your thoughts on the decentralized network? Yeah, I, you know, we, we, uh, we're definitely interested in that. The, the truth of the matter is, you know, we just, we call it a ledger right now. We call a it a, okay. a HOA ledger. So HOA stands for Homeowners Association. And that HOA can be ledgered. And, and we're agnostic at this moment about which crypto that we would use. My um, leanings are for any system which is using, it has to be at least one ten thousandth of the power uh, consumption. Uh, and you have to be able to get consensus on a simple device like cell phone, for instance. But other than that, uh, we're pretty agnostic. But the ledger itself is really interesting because living inside a regen village, you don't have to be a farmer. You don't have to be an engineer. You're not forced to go chop wood or, or do any of those things in the community. But if you do do those things, then the ledger can, can account for that, for what you and your family do, and thus lower your family's monthly association fee and or help pay your rent or your mortgage. Um, and especially for the people who are living social affordable in the community, that's their path to ownership from our perspective. So we're very much interested in a ledgering system. And as I mentioned, we're really agnostic as to which you know, currency that, that would end up being. James, there's been a big uh, behavioral shift of people now staying indoors. And that's what all the experts are saying is what's going to take to flatten the curve of all of these infection rates. Now, do you think there's going to have to be a major behavioral shift in order for people to adopt uh, living on the outskirts of towns, uh, working from home, maybe in a decentralized community? Um, and how do you see that playing out? Well, first of all, before COVID uh, was even uh, an idea that anyone ever had or mine in their minds, there was an Oxford study that came out last year that predicts within 20 years, 47% of all employment will not exist anymore. 47% due to machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotics, um, and not just um, manufacturing jobs or labor. We're talking about white collar kinds of legal professions, um, doctors, professors. Uh, it's it, the truth is that that is something that is really coming fast and furious right at us. And uh, and in a way, COVID is a blessing. 
We have to look at it that way because it's actually creating forced new economic models as we speak. And, and that will allow people to live further and further away from big cities in safety with self-reliance um, and be connected through technology to do whatever tasks they need to do. Uh, and in, in any case, we know that what's coming is that half of employment's not going to be there anyway. So we have to start to reinvent what does employment actually mean? Mm. Is it a combination of having a place to live with some monthly UBI, universal basic income, and you know, in ex- exchange for that, you're expected to do a certain amount of things with your time and energy within the community and then your online community? Mm. I think that's really where we're, we're heading. And so, again, I, I really... Um, uh, I want people to feel optimistic that very soon, in in probably in, in several months, we will be able to come out of this uh, dark cloud of COVID nineteen, and the new world that's that will emerge uh, is actually really beautiful, and is about thriving, and is about compassion, and is about new economic models that are intended to balance this tremendous economic inequality hmm. that exists right now uh, around the entire planet. Yeah, there's a major asymmetry indeed. And I just thought it was so interesting now that for our U.S. listeners, you know, Republicans hopping on board to to pay uh, a dividend to the United States uh, citizens. And it didn't get passed today, but um, just that alone, uh, when you're just talking about UBI, it just makes you go, oh, okay, definitely could happen. Um, now I'm just, I was reading the four hour work week over the weekend, um, James, just because I had time to relax. And there was a example that just popped in my head and he was talking about, uh, the, the corporate worker taking a trip to Mexico. And in this, uh, this scenario, uh, he sees a a Mexican fisherman coming back from uh, his boat. He's got about four fish in his boat and he's, and he asked, he said, Oh, how many, how long you been out there? Oh, two hours. You know, what you get? Oh, I got fish for myself, my family, and a couple of friends. And the the American goes on and he says, you know, well, you can buy a boat. We can invest in this. We can get some uh, people. We'll get you a business. We'll grow the business. You can move to New York City, make all this money. And then when you're 65, what would you want to do when you're retired? Well, he said, well, I'd I'd just be doing the same thing. You know, I'd be out here fishing and giving food to my family. So the point being there is... We've established this culture of business society and communities, why people do what they would do. Why do they move to cities? There's more economic opportunities. So when we talk about paradigm shift, how far out do you think we are for this to actually take place? I know you just talked about it. How far out do you think we are and what's, gonna, what's it going to take? We're, we're in it right now, my friend. We're in it right now because uh, I don't know about you, but with my family and my friends and my my other family, extended family around um, the U.S. and in Europe, especially, uh, we are really focused uh, every day on what we're capable of of having delivered to our house in terms of food. Um, we don't have the freedom, in other words, to just go out and venture out and 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 just get what we've always feel like is always there, and so. This constriction on the food distribution matrix right now is profound. People are really waking up to food waste, to to thinking differently about how how they prepare their food and store their food, uh, and in 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 how they're even like rationing meals, 
you know, to try to plan for the dinner, the lunch, the next days ahead, because we just don't know what's going to be delivered to your doorstep. And tomorrow, if even that delivery is going to happen. So this is a, this is the, the paradigm shift is we're in it right this minute. People are realizing right now that um, we, this, this whole uh, economic milieu that we live under is uh, is a design construct from a group of people's minds. It's not natural. It was invented. Uh, as much as everybody wants to tell you that's the fact, that's how things work. Um, you know, we're. I think we're going to enter very quickly into a new paradigm, um, especially because you know the amount of unemployment that's co- that's coming, that's happening now, and that's going to continue to come. We don't know where where those next jobs can even come from, where the, where the economy is going to go. And uh, of course, we're concerned in this moment, and a lot of people have a lot of fear in this moment, because even the stop gaps that, that our government is talking about are probably not enough for people to get by. So already we're in the middle of a paradigm shift of, 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 of terrible pain point. And I'm hoping that and praying that we get through this, these pain points and we're able to move through it. Just by way of example, you know, Denmark, uh, you know, announced that, you know, for the next three months, at least, if not longer, that every person in the country, every citizen will be at 80% of their salary, guaranteed. Hmm. And, um, and that is a method directly intended to just make people feel like, okay, no problem. You know, we just have to stay indoors. We can order the food. There's been orderly distribution. We have the ability to to make our rent. We have their ability to make our mortgage. We have the ability to, you know, to um, to order food, et cetera. And so we need that here. We need that also um, in the U.S. and other parts of the world. And and I'm and I'm really hoping and again praying that our our government officials uh, are understanding what the implications are if they don't do this in the right way. Uh, for some period of time, not just a one month payment, uh, but 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 some period of three, four, five, maybe even six months that people are going to have to really shorten the curve. Yeah, it, it will be interesting to kind of cover that and see how that unfolds. Uh, James, but you were mentioning, you know, this I, I want to go back to this lily pad example. Sure. Now, when you're collecting data, um, one, where exactly are the opportunity zones is it in the uh, south america is it in rural places around the world how are you collecting this data and what are you doing with it okay well the first thing is that we're focused on infrastructure which is um clean food clean water clean energy and and clean hygiene essentially waste to resource management those are the key components of of the data capture for the basis of the village operating system. It includes some other data that has to do with the functioning and the nutritional flows in the neighborhood uh, and anything coming from someone's house or apartment or community center, whatever it is, that data is highly anonymized um, and and then securitized and then embedded into the the overall thinking. Um, Our goal really for, for, for regen villages is to look at the um, initially the, the developed context economically around the world 
in Europe and U.S. and Canada and other parts of of, of South and Central America, et cetera, um, and then move to the global South with this idea for designing for extreme affordability with governments so that in rural India, sub-Saharan Africa, and across ASEAN especially, this is where the next two to three billion people are anticipated to come to the planet. Um, And nearly half a billion plus people are intended to be moving into the middle class out of poverty. Mm. Now, when you get a half a billion people, okay, moving into the middle class, they need a new aspirational model for living. Because if they want what we have in terms of suburbs in the US and in Europe and Canada and other places, the planet will die. We just don't have the capability for car culture, waste producing, energy sucking subdivisions anymore. Mm. We need to be able to create these lily pads at scale rapidly around the world. So, so that's our really our, our, our call to action is to, to use the software, our village operating system software as a lever to create these master plans effectively and manage those, those communities with our software and be able to see the kind of sovereign wealth, pension fund, those trillions I was talking about, engagement in creating a lot of these lily pads simultaneously around the world. And guess what? That's a hedge, literally a hedge against the zombie apocalypse. James, this has been a great conversation. I'm glad we were able to have you on the show. I'm just curious, where does all this intuition come from? <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's a bit like this. You know, I spent 15 years eating the most amazing meals with coming from the most incredible family farms, intentional communities, learning about uh, people's stories through their recipes, and honestly feeling like I was living in a bubble. We were living in a bubble about what's organic and biodynamic and clean and just kind of felt like, okay, we got this. We really got this. Um, but then I had my son, Louis, who's now nine years old, and he was born in, in 2010. And um, at that moment was the BP oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. And I saw an entire food bearing ecosystem um, essentially devastated. And then on the heels of that in 2011 was Fukushima. And then I started to see the climate data. And so it's not so much intuition. <laughs> I'd love to say that, I'm, that, I, that I came back from the future in a time machine and I know how it's gonna all turn out and everything's gonna be great. Um, I feel that way because that's what I think we all have to feel, that we have to have optimism. Um, but this is where it came from. It was born from a sense of wanting to help uh, the people in the Gulf of Mexico, was wanting to help the people in in Japan, was wanting to find solutions. Um, And then, of course, the climate data came out and I realized, you know, uh, I'm at Stanford University. I must be surrounded by brilliant people, and I I am, who who have solutions. So I started to, to, to figure how could I take some of my ideas, find the right home for it, and that's when you know, I, I initially um, developed this research in the School of Mechanical Engineering at the Center for Design Research under Professor Larry Leifer. Um, and because Larry was, was a, is a visionary and, 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 and believed in design empathy and believed in this idea 
as big as it is uh, or was at the time, um, that's how I was. That was the that was the wings that I needed to self-invest my own uh, life savings into regen villages and devote my life to this. And uh, and I just believe I know in every cell of my being that we're on the right path, that this is the right way forward, and that we are going to solve a lot of problems for a lot of people, um, you know, come into the coming days in the future ahead. James, do you find you, you talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Do you find self-fulfillment in that? Uh, I find self-fulfillment in the very simple pleasures. Okay. And, and, and I think now more than ever, you know, when you, when you uh, take a bite of an apple or a bite of asparagus or a spoon of honey or whatever it may be that just take an extra few moments to give thanks and blessing and be in gratitude for what that took to get to your palate and how important that is for our life force and our life affirming, you know, things. So to me, there's the basic Maslow of needs, but then there's the celebration of these life affirming components. And, um, and once you have those basic needs met, really you, you, you can, you can feel safe. And that's really what we all want. We want people to feel safe mm. and happy. And, um, and so we're, we're, we're moving in that direction right now. That's where we're going. So I'm optimistic. We just have to stay healthy, stay safe, and, uh, and keep optimistic that a regenerative, resilient future is in our midst. And just to bring this full circle, you know, that's one of the first questions we talked about today. What are the positives that are going to come out of something like this? Uh, I'm glad, glad we were able to have you on. I think it's such a relevant topic for, for the time being right now. Um, now, so James, to bring this full circle, if a, if a positive is going to be the business community is going to have a mutualistic relationship with uh, ecology, if that's a positive coming for out, out of this, um, what is some of the leadership that is needed and what is your definition of a real leader? Well, I look, I mean, the, the, the main thing really is we, we, we have to change the rules. The rules on the books right now for, let's say, residential development is, are 100, 150 years old. The rules were put on the books by, I like to say, um, old white guys in top hats um, who, you know, God bless them, you know, had their power company, their water company, their sewage company, their waste removal, whatever it is, their roads, their infrastructure, their materials. And so all the rules that are on the books are based on these material and corporate interests. And now we need to unfold those rules and rapidly be able to create a new rule book that allows us to create these kinds of off-grid, decentralized, safe neighborhoods for social affordable housing for the masses, mm. for, for the populace of Earth. So real leadership uh, are the parliamentary leaders who, who, who agree with this, who, who are trying hard to change rules. Um, real leaders are the people um, in the regional and local governments who are also fighting the good fights to, to get these rules changed. Um, and the universities, uh, like at Stanford, 
and and other places around the world where you know they really understand their role in changing rules and changing the way things get done once those rules get changed then the capability for the flow of funding is the path for that becomes much more apparent mm. and so those are the steps we really feel are are, are going to happen concurrently we do also need money so we, we're trying to raise funds and we feel like we, we have a lot of exciting things to offer in an impact investment so long-term you know uh, positive annuity streams to to those who invest in us and and i think the combination of those things together we can make a new rule book and that those rules can be applied to not just us for regen villages but for any developer or landowner who has this rule book this this vision to create self-sustaining uh, facilities on their land well, there we go, folks. That's how you change safe homes and, and make them self-reliant. Uh, for James Ehrlich, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, James. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Kevin. This is great. And thank you, good people, for taking time to listen to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. For all the subscribers out there, please leave us a review. We ask you, we beg of you to let us know what you think of the podcast, what you think of the guests, and how you would change it if you were running this company. For lucky listeners, again, we will always give you the coupon code PODCAST25. You're going to get four magazines for the price of three when using coupon code PODCAST25 at checkout. Again, folks, PODCAST25, all lowercase. For the visual learners today, if you want to watch this interview on your computer or tablet or TV with friends and family, make sure to subscribe to our new YouTube channel. That's at Real Leaders Magazine to see all of the interviews from conferences with guests, harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. Thanks again, folks. Make sure you're going out there or maybe not going out there, staying inside. Let's stay inside this week, folks, during this quarantine. Stay safe and keep your distance. We're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. Let's not stay stuck. Let's keep on keeping on, people. We love you. Thank you. We'll see you next time.